0: This morning, from the Word of God, we'll be reading and also considering uh, the section found in Ephesians 6, verses 14 through 20. If you're using your pew Bible this morning, you can find this on page 1,347. Ephesians 6, we'll be reading and also then considering the section that includes verses 14 through 20. Uh, This section is a well-known section, uh, often used in perhaps vacation Bible schools or in uh, Sunday school material as it describes the whole armor of God. We begin reading then at verse 14 of chapter 6. "'Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, "...for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak." Thus far, our reading from the Word of God this morning. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ in any type of military conflict, uh, the adequate obtaining and then also the proper use of armament and weaponry is crucial. If you're going to win a battle... You have to be prepared for the battle. This is true not only in regards to physical conflict or military conflict, but this is also true in regards to the spiritual conflict that each and every one of us is and is to be engaged in. As we try to expound the Word of God this morning to the encouragement of our defensive posture in this spiritual battle in which we are engaged in, we turn our attention to the words of our text, and I've put a theme over it, a call for spiritual armor. And as we unpack that theme this morning, we'll notice, first of all, the purpose of the armor, and then secondly, the description of the armor, and then thirdly, the action with this armor. So God, underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, influences the Apostle Paul to write to the church of all the ages, not just to the Ephesians, calling us to engage in spiritual conflict with the appropriate spiritual armor. Well, notice the purpose, the description, and the action of this armor. First of all, then, the purpose of this armor is seen by way of a brief review and then also by the grammar of our text. When I say seen by review, we we reach back a little bit uh, and we remind ourselves of what we attempted to say last week, Sunday morning, as we looked at the prior verses, reminding ourselves of verses 10 through 13, and especially of the reality that Scripture reveals that there is this great spiritual conflict. Oftentimes, we can become ignorant of this fact. We can become oblivious to this fact. But there is a continual engagement between ourselves and the cosmic forces of the powers of darkness. Now, we don't say that to frighten us unnecessarily, but rather to remind ourselves of the continual need for a state of alertness because this battle is a real battle, but it's also an intense battle. The intensity of this conflict is seen uh, as the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 5 verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, and that sobriety certainly includes an avoidance of intoxicating drink, the abuse of intoxicating drink, but this sobriety means a right frame of mind. Be alert, be aware, and be vigilant. Always be on guard. Well, why? Because your adversary, the devil, did you know that you had an adversary? Did you know that you had someone who is against you, who is your enemy? and he is the devil. That's the reality of this spiritual conflict. But notice also the intensity of that spiritual conflict. The devil walks about, and you might say that that's an an anthropomorphism because the devil doesn't have legs, physical legs, but the devil is active. The devil is moving. Now, he's not omnipresent. He's not divine. He's not everywhere present, but he also has a host of demons. Who are underneath his direction. And now, of course, Satan is underneath the sovereignty of God, but God sovereignly permits Satan to be about his diabolical activity during this present current age. And Satan then goes about in a variety of ways seeking, this is what Peter says, seeking whom he may devour. And that word stresses the intensity of this spiritual conflict. Satan doesn't just want to bump into you. Satan doesn't just want to annoy you. You know, in, in families with more than one sibling, and boys and girls, you can maybe think of this. Sometimes your brother, oftentimes it's usually the brother, but maybe it's your sister. Sometimes your brother just tries to bug you. Just tries to get your attention. Just tries to get a reaction from you. They're not seeking to devour you. They're not seeking to really cause an incredible amount of pain. They're just trying to annoy you. That's not what the devil is trying to do. The devil isn't just trying to bug you. The devil isn't just trying to annoy you. The devil isn't simply trying to get your attention. He wants to destroy you. He wants to annihilate you. He wants to devour you, and he's motivated by his diabolical hatred for Christ and for all who belong to Christ. And so there is this intense, dangerous spiritual warfare that calls for vigilance, as especially is emphasized within the epistle to the Hebrews. Uh, We think chosen at random, Hebrews 3, verse 12 and 13, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And the purpose, then, of this armor that Paul will go on to describe is seen grammatically within our text, especially if you look at this one word that is emphasized in verse 14, stand, and it's found also in verse 13, stand. The attacks of the evil one come with all of their continual intensity And the provision of this spiritual armament that Paul will go on to describe is that the Christian might be able to withstand these assaults, that the Christian might be able to stand as a bulwark upon the gospel of sovereign grace and defend themselves against this intense attack of the evil one. And this word stand, it denotes a a firm steadfastness. Well, we might broaden it out in our context, and the verb or the action is to stand with a, with a certain biblical conviction, with a certain theological understanding, and a moral conviction. The one thing that I would desire, if I could give it to you I would, but I can't, the Spirit has to. The one thing I would desire for each and every member of this congregation and each and every person who hears these words is a spirit, a soul, a conscience that is gripped by the Word of God and by the authority of the Word of God that we might be able to stand in the evil day. And as all the various strange winds of doctrine flow throughout our culture and begin even to infiltrate the broad church, that we might stand I can't help to use an analogy from West Michigan uh, of the piers that are poured out concrete and and, and massive rocks out into uh, Lake Michigan. And and the wind and the waves year after year after year batter upon these piers that, that go out of the channels. But those piers stand fast. They stand firm, unmoved. By the wind and the waves. And that would be my desire for us as a church, and for us as families, and us as individuals, that we might stand against all of the attacks of the evil one, against the prince of the power of darkness who seeks to destroy us. And that's Paul's desire, He longs for the church of Ephesus to stand with biblical, moral, theological conviction. And so he exhorts them, put on the armor of God. And that transitions us into our second point. But as we transition into the description of the armor, allow me to make this point of application. You, I, we will not be able to stand unarmored. If if we do not put on the whole armor of God, it will be impossible to stand. Another analogy, boys and girls, I don't know if these are still popular. They used to be popular a couple of years ago. They were known as rip sticks. Uh, like two-wheeled skateboards kind of things, I've never been able to do a ripstick. If, if I try to stand on a ripstick, I guarantee you I will fall. I, I don't have the balance. I don't have the, the fleet foot that's needed to operate one of these things. It's absolutely impossible for me I I see some of you, you you can go on these things and you can go up and down uh, the sidewalk or the driveway or the road. My point is, if I try to spiritually stand without the armor of God, guaranteed fall. If any of us tries to stand without the armor of God, guaranteed fall. So what then is the armor of God? And our second point, it's a military armor, and it is an appropriated armor. Uh, I want to begin the second point by acknowledging that time and energy do not allow us to go through each piece of this armor in detail. Uh, there was a Puritan, William Grinnell. Uh, he wrote a 1,200—that's 1,200 that's 1, pages. And and fine print pages on this passage in front of us. Over a thousand, the book is like this thick. When I was still in seminary, uh, I would read a section each Saturday night. I've I've never gotten through the entire book. Now you can also get an abbreviated version. And the book is wonderful, it's very insightful. My point is, uh, there is a wealth of material here. So we're going to just simply try to summarize this military armor, by describing each element briefly. So, if you have your Bible there open, if you just glance through the first element of this armor, verse 14, girded your waist with truth. And the Apostle Paul is referring to the common military equipment of the Roman army, a Roman army which we will be reminded was the premier military force. The world had never seen anything like the Roman army. Conquer the known world. Uh, And all of the Roman soldiers had a basic weaponry. And essential, foundational to that was the belt. Uh, The belt that was often made of leather uh, that, of course, would go around the midsection. Now, you notice that the Apostle Paul uses language that in our day might might sound a little bit strange, girding your waist with truth. Uh, But as I thought about this, and I know this analogy won't work for everybody, uh, but sometimes uh, at, at the gym and the workout section, you, you'll, you'll see these, these young men with incredible strength. Now, there's other young men who just go to the gym, I think, to look in the mirror at themselves, but sometimes you'll see these men with incredible strength and they'll put on a weightlifting belt as they get ready to load the bar in the squat rack and, and just move incredible amounts of weight. And This weightlifting belt just kind of supports everything in the core midsection, keeps all of the muscles bound and tight so that the core muscles then can engage in the heavy-duty lifting. And that's something of what's in mind here, to prepare yourself, to lock everything in place, to bind to bind the inner core, not of your physical muscles or of your organs, but rather of your theological convictions, to bind it together with the belt of truth. Truth is so vital in its importance. And we're living in a day characterized by postmodernity which denies absolute truth, object of truth. In many ways, our world is echoing, Pilate's statement, what is truth? Well, there's an answer for that question, and the answer is found also in Scripture in the words of Jesus Christ in John 17 as He's praying to His Father. He says, Your Word is truth. And I I want every young person especially to know this along with all of us. The Word of God is truth. And and this Word of God is what we are to use uh, to bind up. Our thoughts, our beliefs, and in the Roman military equipment, every other part, for the most part, was somehow connected to the belt, especially the offensive weapon of the sword. The sword was to be hung upon the belt. So, gird up the loins with the belt of truth. The truth of the Word of God. The Apostle Paul continues, uh, and he describes not only this belt of truth, uh, but then the second element is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate would have been uh, a piece usually of of some type of metal that would go on the front of the chest and also on the back. Uh, And boys and girls, as you learn about anatomy, as you learn about the, the body, the human body, you, you, you begin to learn that some of the most important parts of our body are located in our chest. Now certainly, I mean, nobody wants to, to take an arrow to the leg or to the arm, but if in battle you were to take an arrow to the leg or to the arm, you still have a pretty good chance of living I I suppose you could bleed to death, but if you're able to put a tourniquet on quickly enough, uh, you can remove the arrow, it will heal, because there's not a vital organ there. But when you think of the chest, you think of the heart, you think of the lungs, and you think perhaps some other vital organs And so the second piece of equipment that the Apostle Paul mentions is the breastplate of righteousness. The righteousness, especially in Paul's understanding of the gospel, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The objective, imputed righteousness. Now there's also the understanding of the righteousness that is the fruit of faith. But Paul's primary emphasis all throughout his writings, as seen in Romans 3, for example, is the righteousness of God freely imputed to us, merited, obtained, earned by Jesus Christ, gifted to us out of grace and mercy, received by the exercise of faith, have on the breastplate of righteousness. And in the shoes, uh, the Roman military was so successful in part because of the way that they could march, the way that they could travel long, long miles in a rather rapid pace. Anyone with any type of military understanding knows the need to transport troops very, very quickly. And the Romans had a very simple but very successful design of footwear that could stand, that could hold uh, the impact of long, long, long miles. Even today, again, by way of an analogy, those who, who jog or run understand the importance of shoes. Bad shoes, worn-out shoes, improper fitting shoes, you will not be able to run for very long. You'll develop either blisters on your feet uh, or, or knee pain. It, it, maybe if you don't have enough arch support, uh, you'll have pain there. But if you have the right shoe and if it's properly working, it certainly gives you the opportunity to run longer. Notice what these shoes are characterized as uh, with the Apostle Paul, having shot or put on these shoes, your feet, with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the glad tidings, the proclamation of peace with God. You can think here of Romans 5 verse 1 therefore having peace with God. How do we have peace with God? Through the gospel, through the gospel of justification by faith. And this is one of the most successful remedies for diabolical attacks. You know, Luther was an interesting man, Martin Luther. He certainly had an understanding of the gospel. He also had an understanding of demonic activity. And he was oftentimes a victim of demonic attacks characterized with bouts of spiritual depression. And I paraphrase, he had this saying that when Satan would come to him and attack him and ask him, Luther, where is your righteousness? Do you know what Luther would tell the devil? He would tell the devil, Satan, if you are looking for my righteousness, you must go to heaven. It's not here in me. It's not in my own works. But my righteousness is in heaven. And he's seated there at the right hand of the Father. So go there. And sometimes, perhaps, if we find ourselves characterized by being overcome with spiritual doubt and despair, maybe we need to be a little bit more like Luther and say, Satan, if you're looking for my righteousness, take it up in the court of heaven. Go talk to my elder brother. Go talk to my advocate. Go talk to my defense attorney. Go talk to my savior. Go talk to my Christ. There you will find my righteousness. Seated at the right hand of the Father. Uh, the equipment continues. The feet of the preparation of the gospel, and then in verse 16, the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And these days in military equipment, uh, one of the most successful tactics for one army to attack another army was, of course, with bows and arrows. And there was the long archers. There were the long archers uh, with, with long bows. And of course, they didn't have cannons. They didn't have rockets in those days. So, what the long archers would do is they would, from a great distance, take arrows and then dipped them in some type of tarry substance, and and light them on fire, and and then just launch them. And and imagine marching to battle knowing that eventually the sky would be filled with arrows that not only had a sharp head on them, but also were on fire. When I think of this, it must have taken some courage to march into battle knowing that soon flaming arrows would be coming at us. And so the Romans had a shield often made of wood about the size of a door, if you can imagine that, large enough for you to hide your whole body behind. And they would cover it with with leather. And then before the battle, they would soak this in water. I can't imagine how heavy these were, but of course Roman soldiers were not faint-hearted men. And they would carry this shield of a wooden-sized door draped in leather, soaked in water into battle so that when the sky began to be filled with flaming arrows, uh, they could take the shield and they could hide behind it. And as the arrows came, they would stick into the shield and the saturated leather would extinguish the flames. That's what faith is to do. When doubts, Win fears... When uncertainties, when spiritual anxieties begin to arise within our hearts, when our consciences trouble us in the exercise of faith, of a confidence and a trust in the all-sufficient work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to hide behind the shield of our faith, saying, but there is the gospel. There is the good news of salvation. There is the glad tidings of forgiveness of sins and of eternal life through the work of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what will happen is in the arrow, the flaming arrow of Satan, when he says, you're not good enough, you're not holy enough, you're not righteous enough, you're not spiritual enough, that flaming arrow will stick into that shield of faith, and the fire will go out. You see, it's not that we, we, we try to dodge the arrows and say, oh, but I am pretty good. Oh, but I'm better than that person. That's not going to be successful because eventually, if you try to deflect the arrows of Satan's attack with any type of appeal to your own works, you'll you'll get caught by an arrow. So don't try to dodge the arrows because the, the sky is filled with them. It wasn't that the opposing army would only shoot one or two of these. They'd know that'd be ineffective. They often had thousands of these arrows. So instead of trying to dodge the arrows of Satan's attacks by some type of an appeal to your self righteousness, rather hide behind the door of salvation of Jesus Christ and of his work alone. You'll notice that there is one element of armor that is to be put on the head, the helmet of salvation. Now, here again, boys and girls, you understand the importance of the head. It's where the brain is located. And this word salvation, it really just includes everything that we've just described. Just notice the importance of protecting the mind, the way that we think. You know, it's been said, and it's right if you, if you understand it correctly, There's a danger of mere head knowledge. And and that's true, there is a danger, but there's also another danger of an absence of head knowledge when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the doctrines of salvation. Now, salvation is not just knowing certain things cognitively, intellectually, but to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you do need to know something about Him. You need to know who He is. You need to know what He's done. And this knowledge is a knowledge that, yes, is in our heart, but also includes our, our head, our mind, our mental faculties. I just say this because it's common sometimes to just emphasize Well, it's just all about my personal relationship with Jesus. But who is Jesus? And what has He done? And how do you have a relationship with Him? Take up the helmet of salvation, and then the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But time hastens on, and so must we, into briefly considering our third action Our third point, rather, the action within the armor. You know, you would think, having described all of this military equipment, that the Apostle Paul would say, now now attack with unrelenting fierceness. Now start slaying the enemy. But just notice the action is that of praying and perseverance. Praying. Verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. When a Christian prays, the devil trembles. And when a Christian prays, the devil often retreats. I need to be purposely brief here, so I'll skip right to a question of application. And I ask myself this question, Do you spend, do I spend, do we spend more time criticizing the way the world is or praying for the advancement of the gospel? Paul doesn't say bemoan the state of affairs, Ephesians. He says pray. Praying with prayer is not an unnecessary redundancy. Don't just go through the lip service of uttering routinely memorized phrases, but praying with an earnestness for the advancement of the gospel. And then the action of perseverance. Uh, This perseverance Verse 18, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication. I just want to drop in at that word being watchful. Uh, This means keeping oneself awake, keeping oneself on guard. Sometimes if we're on a lengthy road trip that involves driving through the night hours, and we don't do that very often anymore. We, We did that more perhaps when we were younger. As night would come on, my wife would to me and say, are you okay to drive? You're not going to fall asleep, are you? Are you alert enough? Are you awake enough? Because we all know the temptation, especially in the night hours on the highway as the yellow lines continue to come and the miles continue to roll of just slumbering off into a state of inattentiveness. The same can happen spiritually. I remind you of the situation of King David. When he had made a mighty conquest, the day came when the military went out to battle, but he stayed home. Spent a night of leisure upon the balcony of the palace, and in a state of inattentiveness spiritually speaking his eyes found Bathsheba and you know the end of the story you can think also of Peter and of the other disciples there in the inner circle as Jesus goes into the garden of Gethsemane he says watch and pray but they slumbered and fell asleep now, lest we despair because of our times in which we do grow spiritually groggy, thanks be to God that our Lord continued to pray. But you remember the result also of Peter? Three times he denied even knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be a good exercise at some level and in some way if we asked ourselves in the fellowship of the communion of the saints, brother, sister, are you awake? Are you spiritually alert? Are you okay? Don't fall asleep at the wheel of the Christian life because the results can be devastating. And so, in the midst of this battle, we are exhorted, we are encouraged, we are admonished to put on the whole armor of God so that we might be able to stand with perseverance and with diligence in the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. In anticipation of Exercising the Administration of the Lord's Supper next Sunday morning, we turn our attention now to the preparatory form as this can be found on page 37 in your Forms and Prayers book. We read this on the week prior to the Administration of the Lord's Supper to remind ourselves of the, the need for self-examination. So we begin reading on page 37, the Institution of the Supper. Dear Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, let us give full attention to the words of the Institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord as they are delivered by the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That we may now celebrate the supper of the Lord to our comfort, it is necessary to examine ourselves fully and further to consider carefully that purpose for which Christ ordained and instituted this sacrament, namely his remembrance. The true examination of ourselves consists of three parts. First, let everyone carefully consider their sins and ungodliness. That they may hate their sins and humble themselves before God, considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that He, rather than leaving it unpunished, has punished it in His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. Second, let everyone examine their heart to see whether they also believe the sure promise of God that all their sins are forgiven only because of the passion and death of Jesus Christ and that the complete righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given to them as their own, indeed so completely as if they had personally satisfied for all their sins and fulfilled all righteousness. Third, let everyone carefully examine their own conscience to see if they are fully determined to show true thankfulness to God in every area of life and to walk sincerely before His face, and whether they with full sincerity strive to lay aside all enmity, "'hatred and envy, and earnestly resolve "'from this day forward to live with their neighbor "'in true love and unity. "'All those then who are of this mind, "'God will certainly receive in grace "'and count as worthy partakers "'of the table of his Son, Jesus Christ. "'On the contrary, those who do not sincerely believe "'this testimony in their hearts, "'eat and drink judgment upon themselves. "'According to the command of Christ and the Apostle Paul,' Those who know themselves to be engaging in the following sins without repentance have no part in the kingdom of Christ and should therefore abstain from coming to the table of the Lord. Idolaters, those who call upon deceased saints, angels, or any other creature. Those who revere images, those who engage in witchcraft, fortune-telling, occult practices, or any forms of superstition. All those who despise God, His Word, and His holy sacraments all blasphemers, those who seek to raise discord, factions, and dissension in the church or in the state, all perjurers, all who are disobedient to their parents and those in lawful authority, all murderers, contentious people, and those who live in hatred and envy against their neighbors, all adulterers, fornicators, drunkards, thieves, the greedy, robbers, gamblers, covetous people, and all who lead offensive lives. All those who continue in such sins shall abstain from the Lord's Supper so that they feel the weight of God's judgment and condemnation. But this warning is not intended to discourage those believers with contrite hearts as if no one might come to the Lord's Supper unless they are without sin. We do not come to the Supper to testify about our own perfection and righteousness, but on the contrary, we come seeking life in Jesus Christ apart from ourselves. We come confessing our misery admitting that we have many shortcomings and do not have perfect faith. We also confess that we do not serve God with sufficient zeal, but that we must struggle daily with the weakness of our faith and struggle against the evil lust of our flesh. However, the grace of the Holy Spirit makes us sorry for our shortcomings, gives us the desire to live according to God's commandments, and helps us to fight against unbelief. Therefore, we can rest assured that no sin or weakness that still remains in us against our will can prevent us from being received by God's grace and from being made worthy partakers of this heavenly food and drink. Let's pray together.